them out on earlier in the chapter. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, here's what you know. It is both exhilarating and exhausting, right? You can't wait to get back and tell people what God did. You also can't wait to take a nap, right? Like it is both exhilarating and exhausting. Well, Jesus understood that. So the apostles get back, right? They're exhausted. They've told them all about what's going on. And he says, hey guys, let's, let's get in the boat and let's go to a desolate place. That word doesn't mean bad. It just means remote. So think like a campsite. Let's go to a campsite, get away and rest for a while because you've been working really hard. Verse 33, now many, that's many in the crowd, saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he, Jesus, saw a great crowd, circle great crowd, great crowd, and he had compassion on them, compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So we know from the other gospel accounts that where they were sailing to was a little campsite outside of the town of Bethsaida, okay, outside of the town of Bethsaida. It was about four miles by boat across the water. It was about eight miles by land. So the disciples get in the boat. They're not in a hurry, right? This is supposed to be a restful weekend away. So they're taking their time, but the crowd recognizes where they're going. And the way you would travel on the Sea of Galilee is you just sort of sail along the coast, right? That way you didn't get taken out to sea. So it'd be easy to see where the boat was and to follow them. And what happens is some of the people in the crowd, the ones in really good shape, get there before Jesus does, right? So you've got all the people that do CrossFit and Peloton, right? Like they're already there. They're doing burpees as Jesus gets off the boat. Like, what's up, man? What are we doing? You know, like that is the scene. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in Jesus's shoes for a second. How would you feel if you're tired, the apostles are tired, you intentionally get in a boat and sail away to try to get some time by yourself. And when you get to the retreat site, there is a great crowd waiting for you. I would be irritated, right? I, I would feel like how I feel after I put my kids to bed and it's me time and they keep coming out of their bedroom. I'm like, I will give you anything to stay in your room. Like, just stay in there, right? You would think that Jesus would be irritated or angry or frustrated, like, I'm trying to get away. Why do you keep following me? That's how most of us would, pretty res- would probably respond. And yet it's really interesting to see how Jesus feels. It says that he had compassion on them that he had compassion on them. And the Greek word translated had compassion refers to a feeling deep in your gut, a feeling that's deep in your gut that you cannot ignore that leads you to do something, right? So we're told that it is compassion that led the good Samaritan to stop and help the man that was left for dead by the side of the road. We're told that it was compassion that led the father to run and embrace the prodigal son. Psalm 103 tells us that God has compassion on his people like a father has compassion on his children. You see, one of the things we have to understand from the scriptures is that compassion is one of God's characteristics. God feels deeply and it leads him to do things. The greatest act of compassion that there's ever been, the sending of Christ the Son to save his people from their sins. Now, we need to understand the difference between compassion and concern because I would suggest to you that we misunderstand this. You see, my generation and younger, so if you're, you know, a millennial or ju- younger, we love concern, don't we? Oh, we're concerned about everything on social media. We share everything. We retweet everything. We have a t-shirt for everything. Like, how many bumper stickers can go on our cars? My goodness. Like, we're concerned about every issue. We have a lot more concern than we have compassion. Because here's what concern says. Concern says, I wish that wasn't happening. Compassion says, I'm willing to do something about it. Concern says, man, abortion, abortion really, really startles me. Compassion says, I'll give of my time and my money to Thrive Pregnancy Center so that teenage moms who are in crisis know that somebody cares about them and so that somebody will be there for them and so they can have this 
child, right? Concern says, man, I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about the direction of our society. I'm really worried about this. Compassion says, I'll serve in the kids' ministry. I'll serve in the kids' ministry to help hand the gospel off to the next generation, right? God is not a God of concern. God is a God of compassion. That deep-seated emotion leads him to act, and as his people, we should be defined by his compassion as well. Concern is fine, but concern needs to grow in maturity into action so that we are putting the gospel on display with our, words, uh, with our deeds as we proclaim it with our words. So Jesus felt that for this crowd. He felt deep concern for them. Why? What, I mean, what was so, here's a crowd. Why is he so concerned about them? Well, look at the text. It says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, most of us have not ever been around sheep before. And so we're like, what's wrong with a sheep without a shepherd? Won't they be fine? They will not be fine. Okay. Sheep without a shepherd die. That's what happens to sheep without a shepherd. They are extraordinarily ignorant animals. They can't feed themselves. They can't find their own water. This is funny. If they fall over, they can't get off their backs. Like they're just like this until they die. That's literally what'll happen. They need a shepherd to literally like pick thorns and bugs out of their wool. Like shepherds do everything for their sheep. So Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, they are in a lot of danger because they are like sheep who don't have a shepherd. They're vulnerable. Man, they don't have the food that they need. They're not protected. They're not being led to still waters. They need a shepherd. And so here's the important part of this entire text. Jesus' compassion is stirred. He wants to do something for them because they're sheep without a shepherd. What does he do? You see it? He began to teach them many things. He began to teach them many things. Now, that's very counterintuitive for us. Here's what Jesus didn't do. Jesus did not organize them into labor unions. He didn't heal all of their physical diseases. He didn't lead a political movement. He didn't help them have more wealth, health, and prosperity. What did Jesus do when he saw a crowd that was like sheep without a shepherd? He taught them about the kingdom of God. And this isn't a one-time occurrence. This is a pattern in Jesus' ministry. He primarily was a preacher and a teacher. He had extraordinary power to heal. We're going to find out that he had power to multiply food and relieve physical needs. He certainly could have led a political revolt, right? He said at the end of one of the gospels, do you not think that I could call down 12 legions of angels and have them defend me right now? I mean, Jesus could have done all of these things, and yet instead of doing them, he chose to teach. Jesus had power to do many things, but he chose to teach. The only conclusion that we can draw is if Jesus is wise and Jesus is good and Jesus had power to do all these things that he chose to teach, it must be that what this crowd needed most and what you and I need most is not a change in our circumstances, but a change in our thinking. There's no other conclusion that you can draw. Either Jesus is not good and he's looking at all these needs and all these legitimate problems that these people have and he just doesn't care. He's like, I've got my agenda. I'm teaching my thing. I prepped this already, right? Or... They actually didn't need a change in their circumstances. You don't actually need most a change in your job, a change in your health, a change in your romantic status, a change in your bank account. You actually don't need that most. What you need most is a change in your thinking. And that's the first big idea from this passage. What we need most isn't a change in our circumstances, but a change in our thinking. And I can just feel you objecting right now. Josh, you don't know my circumstance. I need to make more money. If I made more money, my problems would go away respectively, I disagree with you. Do you know why? Because there are lots of people around the world that make way more money than you, and they are miserable. And there are lots of people around the world that make less money than you, and they're very happy, right? The problem isn't the money. The problem is the way you're thinking about the money. Or you say, Josh, the problem is I'm single. 
That's the problem. If I were married, my problems would go, again, would go away. I disagree with you. Why? Because I'm married. Okay? I have an incredible wife. We've been married for over a decade. But do you know what happens when two people get married? You go from having one set of problems to two sets of problems. And then you have kids. You know what kids are? They're precious, adorable, expensive problems. Like that is what kids are. So it, like it's not, I'm not saying marriage is bad and you shouldn't desire marriage. I'm not saying that it wouldn't help to make more money. I'm just saying if we're going to be logical, it's not going to solve your problems. Like I have just, I probably have more problems now than I did before I got married. I'll just use myself. You know what I say to myself? If the church was just a little bit bigger, like if the church was just a little bit bigger, then I would feel successful. Like then I would feel like a good pastor. Then I would have great self-esteem if the church was just a little bit bigger. It's wrong. It's a lie. Do you know why? I know churches of much larger, or I know pastors of much larger churches who are miserable. And I know pastors of much smaller churches who are happy, right? The problem isn't the church. The problem with how is with how I'm thinking. I mean, guys, undoubtedly, this crowd had lots of problems. Lots of, way more problems than we have, because think about it. 25,000 people is probably what we're dealing with. 5,000 men, as many women, and then probably two or three kids per couple, right? 20 to 25,000 people. How many problems must have been represented amidst 25,000 people that lived 2,000 years ago before the advent of technology and healthcare? They lived in an oppressed area that was very poor. I mean, how many problems must they have had? I mean, the list would be unthinkable. It would just go on and on and on and on and on, and yet Jesus didn't address any of them. Instead of solving their problems with his power, he taught them about the kingdom of God. Why? Because more than better circumstances, what we need is better theology. More than better circumstances, what we need is better theology. What you need and what I need is to know who God is. We need to know God's character. What is he like? How should I relate to him? What can I expect of God? What should I expect of this life? What is waiting for me in eternity? We need to know what God's word teaches about money and relationships, about marriage and parenting, career and education, suffering and loss, hope and eternity, right? We need to know who God is because when we know those things, it changes how we walk through life. It just does. Jesus made the same point in John chapter eight, verse 32. It's a very famous chapter. He said this, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Maybe you've seen that on a bumper sticker or something. Well, what's interesting is that the crowd at the time was very, they were offended by this. They said, Jesus, we've never been enslaved to anyone. The Israelites were very proud of the fact that they had been so violent when the Romans took them over that the Romans kind of let them do what they wanted. They said, we have, we've never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus said, yes, you have. What are you talking about, Jesus? He said, anytime you sin, you are enslaved to that sin. Anytime you sin, you are enslaved to that sin. You see, I think sometimes we're a lot like Jesus' listeners. Jesus says the truth will set you free, and we say, we don't need to be set free. I'm already free. I'm an American, America, right? And Jesus said, no, anytime you sin, you are enslaved to that sin. Do you know what words we use today instead of enslaved, though? We use words like addicted or codependent or controlling. You're enslaved, hear me, this is an important concept. You're enslaved to anything that you can't say no to. I mean, that's what it means to be enslaved, right? That's what makes an enslaved person such a tragedy because they can't say no to whoever has enslaved them, right? That's what makes it so wrong. You are enslaved to anything that you can't say no to. Which means if you can't say no to that website, you're enslaved to that website. If you can't say no to that phone, you're enslaved to that phone. 
If you can't say no to that person, if you can't say no to your job, if you can't say no to your peers, if you can't say no to, man, another piece of comfort food, in that moment, you are enslaved to that thing. We are enslaved to anything that we can't say no to. The man addicted to pornography is enslaved to it. He's tried to say no to it. He's tried to break the habit, and he can't. The codependent girl is enslaved to that relationship. She's tried to become more healthy. She's tried to get out of it. She's tried to spread her time around, and she just can't. She keeps going back to that one relationship. She's enslaved to it. The controlling mom is enslaved to control. She's enslaved to control. She's like, if I can just control every single circumstance of my kids' lives and make sure that they're okay and make sure that nothing bad ever happens, then I will be happy. But she can't. So she's beset with what? Worry and anxiety, right? She wants, to, she wants to let go of control. She wants to be more free, but she just can't. Anything that you can't say no to, you are enslaved to. That's what Jesus is saying. And here's his point. The only way that you can be set free from that is to know what is true about God. Now, how does this work? How does this work? Well, think about it. The addicted man must realize in his mind and in his heart that there is something more glorious and precious and pleasurable and satisfying in God than on that website, right? The codependent girl needs to realize that there is a comfort and a steadfastness and an intimacy in Jesus that is better than any friendship that she could ever have. The worried, anxious mom needs to believe in her heart and in her mind that there is a God who created the cosmos, who holds all things under his control, who knows the hairs on her children's head and loves them and is protecting them. See, when we know that truth, all of a sudden it sets us free and we can say, no, no, I don't have to go back to that site. I don't have to go back to that relationship. I don't have to stay up wondering about all the bad things that could happen to my kids. Why? Because this is what's true about God. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, this is all really personal and really raw, right? I mean, we've all got that thing that we can't say no to. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that memorizing a Bible verse will free you of anxiety overnight. I'm not saying that, man, long entrenched habits in your life will just change immediately when you learn something about God, right? Life is more complex than that. But what I am saying is that learning to think more deeply and biblically about your life is the place to start. That's where we have to start building our foundation. Look, Jesus had compassion on the crowd that day. Jesus has compassion on you today. So what does Jesus do? He teaches us many things. He teaches us many things. Now, the church has gotten this wrong, okay? About 25 years ago, there was something called the seeker-sensitive movement in the American church. And here's the idea. We need to preach overly emotional, shallow messages so that people with no biblical background will engage with them. And the motive was good. The motive was we want to engage with non-churched people, right? But the implications have been devastating. Why? Because we have an entire generation of Christians with no biblical foundation. Like if you've been fed emotional messages with no content for 25 years, your faith is not going to be very strong. The reality is that American Christians today do not have the same theological categories that they did 50 years ago. American Christians today don't know the Bible. They don't know what the Bible teaches about all the things that they're engaging with in the world. If you compared the depth of spirituality from 50 years ago with today, you would realize that we as a nation are extraordinarily superficial in our faith. And here's the problem. 
Superficial, superficial faith doesn't stand up to the storms of life or the antagonism of culture. It doesn't. Superficial faith without deep roots does not stand up to the storms of life. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are here and you're hungry and thirsting for deeper knowledge because you've gone through some things and you're like, look, I've got to get roots deeper into this truth or I'm not going to make it. The church has missed this and we need to correct that. We need to put deep roots into the truths of God's word. So the church has missed this, but honestly, culture has missed this as well. You see, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Our culture says, you will know your truth and your truth will set you free. And that's what you hear in popular music and Disney movies and everywhere on Instagram. Look inside yourself, discover your truth, and then express it. And if you do, then you will be free. The problem is when you do that, it doesn't lead to freedom. Do you know what it leads to? Anxiety. Why is it that in a society that is obsessed with looking in ourselves, discovering what's there, and then expressing it, is also a society that's struggling with the highest levels of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation that has ever been recorded in human history? I think I know why. Because it's so, it's so confusing. Which truth do I believe? Yesterday I felt beautiful. Today I feel ugly. Right? Yesterday I felt smart. Today I feel stupid. Yesterday I felt like my life had purpose. Today I feel totally purposeless. Yesterday I felt like a man. Today I feel like a woman. Yesterday I felt like I had friends who cared about me. Today I feel totally alone like everyone hates me. Which is true, Josh? Which of my truths should I trust? I mean, it's a, it's a terrifying way to live life. Like day by day, how I feel, whatever's in my heart that day based on what song I listened to and what movie I watched. Like that's no way to build a life. You will never be steadfast. You will never have peace if you are looking into your own heart to find a foundation for truth. Do you know what we need? We need a standard of truth that is outside of ourselves that we can compare what we feel to. Here's what this means. I feel worthless today. Is that true? You look at the Bible. God made you in his image. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He sent Christ to die for your sins. If you're a Christian, his Holy Spirit dwells within you. He has prepared good works for you to do, and he is preparing an inheritance for you to in inherit in heaven. No, you are not worthless. Can I, can I give you a nugget? Can I give you a nugget to take home today? Don't believe everything you think. Follow with me? Don't believe everything you think. Just, hear me, just because you think it and just because you feel it does not mean it's true. Don't believe everything you think. You know what the Bible calls us to do? Renew our minds. Renew our minds, not in what happens to be in our heart that day, but what is in God's word, because in God's word is life. David says, God's word is precious to me. It is like drippings from the honeycomb. It is life to my soul and refreshment to my bones. Because in it, you learn about this incredible, glorious God who spoke the cosmos into existence, who holds everything under the counsel of his will and loves you. And has a plan for you and sent his son to die for you. Man, what greater foundation of self-worth could you possibly have? Don't look inside yourself and express your truth. Look inside the Bible and build your life on God's truth. Because that is where life is found. Look, don't believe everything that you think. Right? Don't believe everything that you think. So here's the question. Ready? How well do you know God? How well do you know him? How well do you know God's character? How well do you know the scriptures? How well do you know God's faithfulness to his people throughout biblical history and throughout church history? How well do you know God's provision to his saints throughout the history of the church? How well do you know him? 
Look, your heart can't love what your mind doesn't know. Your heart cannot love what your mind doesn't know. For some of you, this is the issue in your discipleship. Hear me. For some of you, this is the issue in your discipleship. Your love of God is small because your knowledge of God is small. You love the English Premier League because you know so much about it. You love indie music because you know so much about it. You will love God more when you know more about him. Hear me, superficial faith based on emotions and fed by Instagram posts will not cut it. Am I preaching right now? Thank you, CJ. Superficial faith, superficial faith based on emotions and Instagram posts will not cut it. Do you know what you need? You need roots. I want you to be an oak of righteousness. I want you to have deep roots in the truths of who God is and how he feels about you and how he can provide for you and protect you and sustain you so that when the storms of life come and they're gonna come and when the current of culture tries to carry you away, you will stand firm. Look, if you wanna stand up, you've gotta put roots down. Come on, I'm preaching now. If you wanna stand up, you have got to put roots down. So let me ask you, how are you putting roots down? Then are you studying God's word? Man, not because you have to, because you're in trouble if you don't, but like you're just like, man, I've got to put roots down into this truth. Man, are you in community? We've got Bible studies that meet all over the community almost every night of the week. We want to get you connected to one. Do you have other people that are reminding you of what's true when you don't believe it? When you're saying, no, I'm ugly and I'm stupid and I have no purpose in life, they're saying, that's not true, man. They're giving you Bible verses and they're hitting you with scripture. And you're saying, I feel like my life is out of control. They're saying, it's not out of control. He's got it under control. Man, do you have people that are helping you put roots down into the truth of God's word? If you don't, if your roots are shallow, you're not gonna make it. But if you put roots down into this word, do you know what the testimony of the saint says? You will make it through anything. It doesn't matter who gets elected. It doesn't matter what happens in culture. It doesn't matter what happens in your family or in your job or in your relationships. If you've got roots down into this word, you will be okay. And that is the testimony of the church Friends, that is good news. That is why when Jesus saw this crowd and they had all these needs and when Jesus sees you, he says, look, I care about your needs. I know that that hurts right now, but this is what you need most. You need to learn about who I am. You need to know my character. You need to know how trustworthy I am. You need to put deep roots down into this faith. Now, if you want to stand up, you got to put roots down. That's the first thing that we learn. All right, verse 35. And when it grew late, so Jesus teaches, man, Jesus is like me, man. He's just preaching for hours, okay? And when it grew, some of y'all, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I love this. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. I love that, man. I just love Jesus. And they said to him, okay, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So here's what happens. Jesus is preaching, teaching for a long time. It's hours, right? So it's late in the day. So all these people, they're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, they're like out, you know, a campsite. And so the disciples go to Jesus. And they're like, hey, you need to send these people away. It's late. They're hungry. There's like no food out here, right? It seemed like a very obvious, it, you know, like I can't believe he hasn't thought of this yet. Like send them away. And they, they assume he's just gonna be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like you're right. Like let's send them home. Hopefully they got enough time. Um, but I love what Jesus says. Look at verse 7, 37. It starts with but. But that's a word of contrast. That's a word of challenge. But instead of agreeing with the disciples, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And the disciples, this is really sarcastic. You've got to understand, the disciples are being snarky. They're grumpy, they're tired, they're irritable. And so they go, oh, great. 
okay, so you want us to go spend 200 denarii and buy food for all these people. So denarii was one day's uh, wage. So 200, so think about two-thirds of a year's salary, okay? So this is what the disciples are saying, basically. Oh, great, so we'll just go spend $50,000 to feed this crowd. Except that we don't have $50,000 because we follow a traveling rabbi. He doesn't pay us anything, right? Like, I mean, like, they're sarcastic. They're like, this is frustrating. And they're in the middle of nowhere. It's not like Peter can take the Costco card and go get chicken bakes, right? Like, where are they going to, even if they had the money, which they don't, where are they going to get all this food for all these people? Like, it's just not happening. Here's the summary of what they said. We can't. We can't. We can't feed them. Look, I don't know what you brought in here today. I'm sure you brought something. We're not all going through the same thing, but we're all going through something, right? You might have brought in here a job thing. You might have brought in here a health thing, a family thing. We all brought something in here. If you feel right now or you've ever felt like there's something going on in your life that is overwhelming, that is too much for you to deal with, that you just feel crushed by, man, no, this is exactly how the disciples felt. Peter, James, and John, this is how they felt. Jesus, we can't. We can't. Verse 38, and Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. So Jesus' response to their sarcasm was, look, I'm not interested in all the bread you don't have. I'm interested in the bread that you do have. So go and find out. So they go and the gospel of John tells us that they find this one little lad and this one little lad has five loaves of bread and two fish. And at first I was like, what kind of mother gives her son five loaves of bread for lunch? Like my kids eat a lot, but this is ridiculous, right? Like, well, I found out that a loaf of bread back then was basically more like a cracker. It was like a, a barley wafer and the fish were like small pickled fish. So this, it was like five crackers and two fish, okay? Which is pretty reasonable lunch for like a kid, but I mean, it's not gonna do much for, you know, 20 or 25,000 people. Well, then something important happens. Jesus, you see how he had the people sit down in 50s and 100s? At first, you might just be like, oh, it's like a random detail. I guess he's just like a really organized person. That, I mean, maybe. That's a direct allusion to Moses in the wilderness. You see, what God had Moses do in the wilderness was organize the people into tribes and clans and families. And do you know what God did through Moses? He fed the people of Egypt in the wilderness with miraculous bread. We call it manna. You see, what Mark is doing is he's saying, hey, you're looking for another Moses. He's saying, you think Moses was a big deal. You think Moses was a man of God. Well, let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus is a bigger deal. Jesus is not a man of God. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is about to dunk on Moses. That's about that's what's gonna happen, okay? It's a theological term, dunk on Moses. Jesus says, give me the five crackers and the two fish for the 25,000 people in the wilderness and watch me work. Watch who I am. Verse 20, 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, we need to see a couple of things in these verses. There's so much going on. Let me, let me put on a couple of them first. Consider the remarkable power that is at Jesus' disposal. Just think about the remarkable power that is at Jesus' disposal. It says 5,000 men, which means probably at least as many women and then probably twice as many kids. So we're talking twenty to 25,000 people. That's a huge crowd. 
I mean, we had 150 people at my wedding, and I couldn't imagine. I was like, this is so much food for those people, right? Like, I mean, this is an egregious amount of food. And do you see that word satisfied? They all ate and were satisfied. That's the Greek word that's used to describe when you put a feeding bag on a horse. And a horse just eats until it can't eat anymore. That is what this crowd did. They were stuffed. They were gorged. I mean, they were satisfied. They could not eat another barley cracker, right? They were stuffed. How much power would it take to create that much food? I mean, just, I mean, just the physics alone is mind-blowing. Like, it's remarkable. It, it doesn't even, Jesus doesn't get all worked up about it. it. He's not like doing a dance, praying, doing an incantation, you know, burning incense. He's just dishing it out. Like, what Mark, is, he's trying to be like, who is this? Like, who can do this kind of thing? And did you notice how many leftovers there were? I love this. Okay, 12 baskets full. That word basket in Greek is basically like the word for a lunchbox. It's like a little tiny basket you carry your lunch in. Jesus created the exact amount of food necessary to satisfy 25,000 people and to have one lunchbox left for every one of his sarcastic disciples. Come on, that's incredible. Have you ever tried to plan food for a party? Like you never get it right. And yet what kind of precision and wisdom does Jesus have that he's like, this is exactly how much barley I need to make, exactly how many, it's just remarkable. Like, like this is just crazy. This isn't a cute story about hungry people having a picnic. All right, that's not what it is. Many scholars consider this the most remarkable miracle that Jesus ever performed because it is such a startling demonstration of his deity, his godness. It's like, look, God fed the people of Israel in the desert with manna. Jesus fed this crowd of 25,000 with some biscuits, with some crackers in this desolate place. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is not a rabbi. Jesus is not another religious guru. Jesus is not on the same level as Muhammad or Gandhi or your religious studies professor. He's not. He's different. That's what Mark is saying. Who is this man? Who is this man that could do this? The only answer is he's God. That is the only conclusion that we can draw. Now, over the years, skeptics have tried to offer kind of, you know, naturalistic explanations for what happened. Um, they're kind of funny. Some have said uh, Jesus had a cache of food in a cave, or a big cave, and uh, he's back there. He's like handing out bread and fish, and they can't see, you know. He's like, who needs some more, you know? It's, I don't think that's, I mean, where do you even get all the food to put there? Um, some other people said that uh, there's this group of wealthy women that supported his ministry, and they think, well, the wealthy women knew that he was heading there. They saw the crowd going, and they organized the greatest church potluck in history, right? Like, and it's like, come on, you know, like, where are they going to get all the food from, and how are they going to get it all out there? Um, and this is my favorite one. Some people said, here's what happened. When the little boy shared his lunch, it inspired everyone else to share their lunch. It wasn't a miracle of multiplication. It was a miracle of sharing. And Josh gags internally, right? Like, I don't find any of, I don't find any of those explanations very convincing. I mean, I, could, you know, I don't have to explain why. It's like, where would they get all the food? If you saw him taking it from a cave, it's like I, the whole point of the miracle is dead now. It's like, well, I see him obviously doing this. And if, there, if everybody had lunch and the boy just had to share his, it's like, We've now just completely discounted everything that the Bible says, which is like, no, they didn't have food. And it's like, no, well, they did. Well, it's like, well, if you're going to say that, like, you don't believe anything the scriptures say. So what conversation are we having? Guys, the, the big point of this section is not sharing. It's Jesus. Okay? The big section of this, the big point of this section is not sharing. It's Jesus. It's not the provision. It's the provider. The disciples were tired and grumpy and sarcastic. The point is they can't do it. They can't do it. They don't have the time. They don't have the money. They don't have the skill. Kind of like Moses at the Red Sea. He leads the people out of Egypt. He's in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. 
He can't do it. They're stuck. Kind of like Joshua and the Israelites at the walls of Jericho. And they've come out of the Red Sea through the wilderness. They step by faith into the promised land. Here's the most fortified city they'd ever heard of. They can't do it. Sort of like the disciples here. Jesus, we can't do this. But then God says, Moses, lift up your staff. And he says, Joshua, have them blow the trumpets. And Jesus says to the disciples, go and see what you have. And then God did what they couldn't do through them. God did it. They couldn't do it, but God did it through them. Here's what we often say. I've been struggling with this sin for years. Man, my family has always been this way. My friend is too far gone. Man, poverty in our city is too complex. The number of people worldwide who have never heard the name of Jesus is too large. I don't have the money, the time, the energy, the training. I'm too poor, too busy, too tired, too hurt, or too ordinary. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I agree with you, but Jesus can. You can't. Jesus can. If we take this miracle seriously, that's what we have to conclude. That what you and I cannot do, he can. That there is nothing impossible for the Christ who could do this. You see, the disciples couldn't create the miracle, but they could carry it. The disciples couldn't create the miracle, but they could carry it. The same is true for us, guys. We can't create the miracle, but we can carry it. We can carry the miracle that this miracle points to. Because I don't know if you noticed in verse 41, it says that Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. Does that remind you of anything? Those are the same words that Jesus uses in Mark 14, 22 when he institutes the Lord's Supper. You see, the bread the disciples carried was a sign. It was an arrow pointing away from itself to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. The bread that would be broken, not to satisfy our physical hunger, but to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Pointing to the one who came into the world and was broken for the world so that we could be saved. You see, in the most ultimate sense, Jesus has already done what you could never do. He paid the penalty for your sins. You could never do that. He absorbed the wrath of God against you. All of it. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you could drink from the cup of God's blessing. You can't do that. You can't save yourself. You can't create the miracle. But you can't carry it. You can carry it. Just like the disciples did. Do you know where they carried it? They carried it to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to Rome, and then someone carried it to France, and then someone carried it to England, and then someone carried it to the 13 colonies, and then generation after generation after generation carried it until we are here today in Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2021, worshiping Jesus Christ. Friends, we are here because someone carried the miracle. Someone carried it. And now it's our turn. Now it's our turn And for some of you today, that means salvation. Look, you can't carry the miracle until you've accepted the miracle. Some of you came in here trying to earn your way to God. 
You're trying to be good enough, and it's exhausting. And you're worried you're never doing enough. Friend, Jesus has already done it. Stop trying to do a thing that you can never do and instead receive what he's already done for you. You can't create the miracle. You can't pay for your own sin, but you can respond. You can repent and believe. You can say, Lord, I'm sorry for for trying to be the Lord of my own life. I confess I'm a sinner. I receive Christ as my Savior, and I want to follow him. The first step in carrying the miracle is you've got to accept the miracle. For others of us, it means you need to carry the miracle to your kids. You've got to get way more intentional about helping them know who Christ is and what he's done for them and why he's different than every other world leader and every other religious system. You need to carry the gospel to your kids. For some of you, you need to carry the gospel to your spouse. And you've been coming and you've been growing in Christ, but they haven't been. You need to carry the gospel to them. Others, you need to carry the gospel to your coworkers. You need to stop being so worried about what they think about you and you need to start being more worried about their eternal destination. And for all of us, we need to carry the miracle to one another, don't we? I don't know about you, I forget the gospel every day and I act like I'm justified by how good of a preacher I am or by how people feel about me. And you need to come to me with the miracle and say, stop it, Josh. Stop trying to save yourself with your preaching ability. Jesus has already done it for you. Someone carried the miracle to us, and now it's our turn to carry the miracle to others. I can't think of a better way to end this sermon than by taking what this sermon represents, which is communion. So you should have a cup on your chair when you came in. I invite you to take that out, start opening it. The feeding of the 5,000 was a sign It was a sign of how one day Jesus would feed multitudes with the bread of life. And what we do when we take this as a church is we remember the fact that Jesus has done what we could never do. Jesus has accomplished the miracle of all miracles. Jesus has paid for our sin and given us a new identity. And we take this to remind ourselves of it. Which means if you're not a Christian, don't take this. It's not for you. Instead, take Christ, take the substance, take what this points to. Don't stop at the physical bread. Receive the spiritual bread. And for those of us who are followers of Christ today, it's a call to examine our hearts. And how is Christ calling us to carry the miracle of the gospel to those that are around us? So I want to give you a minute just to ponder that, let the Holy Spirit speak to you, and then I'll lead us to take it together. This bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you so that yours wouldn't have to be. Take this in remembrance of him. This cup represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and the sins of God's people. Take this in remembrance of him. And in response to the good news of the gospel, I want you to stand.